on the first episode of Footnotes. Transportation, my opinion, has never been solely about its utility. It is the lifeblood of um, a community, of a city, of a nation, of the world. There's a really strong emphasis on built environment design as the source of the problem and that's the, you know, place where we should be making changes. You know, the way in which people communicate are just so siloed and um, elite and classes, you know, just unaccessible. What would it be like if we just had different people doing the work? In the mere presence, you know, of a, in a, in a black body moving through, you know, certain streets, in a, in a, in a certain neighborhoods, um, and spaces, public and private, would cause people to be fearful. Um, there was this reaction to our bodies, like our, our bodies were out of place and, and we were being disciplined by, um, you know, motorists honking at us and, and saying, you know, you're, you're in the wrong, I'm in the right, you're, not, you're using the streets wrong. What does it mean in a, to be in a too seen for all the wrong reasons or not seen again? for the, in the wrong reasons. You know, what does it mean when life gives you those two options of being hypervisible and invisible? And what does it mean to move through the world overly concerned about your vulnerability? Because the people in these other parking spaces, you know, they weren't in MacArthur Park, and maybe because they were predominantly white as opposed to our group, which was predominantly people of color, um, you know, they, they weren't facing the same kind of... Uh, discipline from police officers. In 2014, Dr. Lugo was working in national bike advocacy in Washington, D.C. This was the year that many American cities began adopting policies for Vision Zero, Vision Zero is a global movement to eliminate traffic fatalities and serious injuries through a variety of engineering, design, and policy interventions. Within Dr. Lugo's work, Vision Zero was everywhere, and with good reason. It is very, very sad and and baffling how in this country we just accept um, traffic death as part of... Part of the the kind of great unknown of just what it means to be alive, where you know we lose loved ones um, to this kind of violence, and it's seen as you know an act of God as opposed to um, a, a human made problem, which it is. This was the same year that the Black Lives Matter movement was gaining significant momentum after the murders of Eric Garner, Michael Brown, and Tamir Rice, along with far too many others, sparked massive protests across the country. For me and for a number of other people who worked in um, fields related to street safety, it was very clear that, you know, this was a moment to really recognize the the connections between um, the history of racism and um, how safe we were or weren't. Dr. Lugo saw a natural connection between Vision Zero and Black Lives Matter, two movements that were fighting to end unnecessary death and suffering. When you're in a black body and you're out there traveling through public space, you are not as safe because you're a target um, for these racist policing systems that we've created. What I took away from Black Lives Matter was, 
we cannot be assuming that there's the same kind of safety happening for different people in our streets. And so we want to talk about street safety. We're going to have to talk about that. And we're going to have to talk about um, sexual harassment. We're going to have to talk about the vulnerability that people who are undocumented are experiencing. The experience of walking, biking, driving, taking public transit, or simply being on the street presents different dangers based on one's race. Trayvon Martin was killed for walking through his own neighborhood. Ahmaud Arbery was murdered for jogging through an adjacent neighborhood. When we're out there in these public spaces, because there are competing ideas about how these spaces should be used, um, who should be there, who shouldn't be there, Uh, All this stuff, you know, we have to think about more than design. We have to think about the fact that different individuals are going to have a different experience of um, those spaces because of what's happening, you know, to our bodies. Like our bodies are are structurally read, you know, as as part of these different categories that have a a greater or lesser access to um, the right to move freely. A 2018 report from the U.S. Department of Justice found that Black Americans are more likely to be stopped by police for traffic stops and street stops. And they are more than twice as likely to have force or the threat of force used against them during those stops. We know all too well that traffic stops can often be the gateway to excessive force and tragic, unnecessary death. Philando Castile was pulled over for a broken taillight. Samuel DeBose was pulled over for a missing front license plate. Sandra Bland was pulled over because she allegedly failed to signal a lane change. Dijon Kizzy was stopped for allegedly riding his bicycle in violation of vehicle codes. You look at safety and public safety, it's very clear that usually what we mean by that is, you know, some group is made safe at the expense of another group, mm-hmm. or some group is removed so that the privileged group can experience um, you know, what they consider to be safety. A recent look at the NYPD found that 86% of tickets for biking on the sidewalk and 99% of tickets for jaywalking were given to people of color. Despite all of this evidence, Vision Zero advocates have pushed for more police presence on city streets to enforce traffic laws. The justification is usually something along the lines of, yeah, racial profiling is bad, but there are just so many terrible drivers. Tensions around this cognitive dissonance have continued to grow, and they've reached new heights in 2020. As the coronavirus pandemic began sweeping through major American cities in March and April, many cities began experimenting with shutting down lanes or even entire streets to traffic to give people more space for walking and biking while maintaining social distancing. At first glance, this may sound like a great idea, and I'll admit that when I first heard about it, I was totally in support of it. But it's not quite so simple because These newly repurposed outdoor spaces often involve some kind of monitoring. Here's Ambar Johnson again. And who monitors the volume of people? More than likely police. When urban designers try to create these spaces for all, they still end up alienating the other faction of that all, like people who are marginalized, people who are Black, people who might not feel safe being in there that 
for all space because they'll be policed. Policing outside the context of a pandemic is already deeply racially biased. So why would things be different now? Recent data found that in Brooklyn, New York, 87% of the people criminalized for not adhering to social distancing guidelines were Black. I am afraid going out without a mask, get myself sick, someone else might like you know try to call someone on me. Me being a Black person wearing a mask outside, already seen as a threat. We've seen this on the news with um, the two Black men who were removed from a Walmart for wearing masks, and they were asked to leave. All of these ways in which people, especially those who are like um, black and brown in some cases, and we're seeing a lot of discrimination from folks who are um, Asian, of Asian descent, um, have their mobility restricted where they're not able to move freely outside to get the essentials that they need because of like the environment that we're in. Decisions around where open streets pilots are located how they're controlled, who can feel safe and welcome there, and what activities are sanctioned, are all deeply racialized. In the world of COVID, you have to remain six feet of distance. I found myself having to move all the way um, across the sidewalk or even into the street at times because people who are not Black do not feel as if they have the right, don't, don't need to move for me, which is something that's like a behavior that's based in a super Jim Crow era of um, black people moving uh, for white comfortability because white people were allowed to have space and black people were not. Who gets the open seat on the bus? Who will give space on the sidewalk? Who stops for whom when two cars reach an intersection? All of these are small daily negotiations of power, but they can have serious consequences in the long run, from how welcome people feel in a space to how safe they are. There's history behind the way in which people behave in our spaces like sidewalks and train cars and other places that have like deep racial um, segregationist policies attached to it that I don't think many of us, especially those of of our generation or even the one before, um, in the future of 2020, (laughs) consider, um, consider seeing like these remnants of the 1950s and 18 somethings and you know, the colonization of the of the United States or the creation of the creation slash colonization of the United States, like impact the way in which we view space. Researchers at Portland State University found that cars failed to stop for black pedestrians more than twice as often as they did for white pedestrians. And that when drivers did stop for black pedestrians, they stopped much closer to the crosswalk on average, crowding the pedestrian and giving them less space to walk. This has real consequences for safety and may play a role in the fact that black pedestrians are killed at twice the rate of white pedestrians. In the summer of 2020, the Black Lives Matter movement has had another resurgence after the death of George Floyd and subsequent protests. Many white Americans are finally being forced to reckon with structural racism in the United States, and particularly the role of policing. Street safety advocates have begun putting out statements about reevaluating their use of police enforcement, including the Vision Zero Network. What that will look like in practice, or whether they'll even move forward with it, remains to be seen. 
2015, Dr. Lugo decided to leave the professional bike advocacy world for good. She had grown increasingly frustrated with her colleagues' unwillingness to utilize a racial justice approach in their bike advocacy work, as well as her experiences of being tokenized as a woman of color in a largely white and largely male work environment. In the years since, she's expanded her focus to sustainable transportation more broadly, and she's found new collaborators with whom she's imagining different ways of approaching street safety. I have gotten to continue to flesh out you know, this idea of there being a broader broader set of safeties and unsafeties we need to consider um, when talking about increasing street safety and increasing access to um, active transportation. Um, so I've been expanding that conversation with a, a multiracial group of um, organizers through what we um, call the Untokening, which is a group we formed in 2016. The Untokening is a collective of Black, Indigenous people of color, women, trans and gender nonconforming people, LGBTQ folks, people with disabilities, and other marginalized identities. All of them have worked within the transportation field in some way and have experienced what it's like to be tokenized within their organizations. Those of us who can represent some marginalized category get invited in to, to be a, a, a token or a, you know, a help them check a box and, and we're not expected to provide substantive contribution and we're certainly not expected to disagree <laughs> with uh, the, the strategies or the um, agenda setting that's happening in those spaces. So enough of us who created the Antokening had had that experience that, you know, the, the idea that we needed to get away from tokenism, make an untokening happen, um, you know, so we we decided that was a good way to describe um, what we were creating. In the past few years, the untokening has held a number of events and conferences in Atlanta, Los Angeles, Detroit, and Durham, North Carolina. They've also put out a few written pieces where they outline their approach to mobility justice, which they define as addressing not only the physical design of streets, but the socioeconomic, cultural, and discriminatory barriers that create vastly different experiences of public space along race, class, and gender lines. And what I'm hearing in terms of, you know, putting mobility justice into practice is it has a lot to do with dealing with the the problem of over-policing of Black and brown populations. And so, you know, it may be that a mobility justice strategy for making streets safer has more to do with that than it has to do with, you know, building bike lanes or, you know, hiring uh, planning firms to come in and and produce built environment changes that make the city look more similar to a, a northern European city. And the untokening is not the only one. There is a strong and growing community of planners, engineers, researchers, and advocates who are calling for a different approach. The question of what makes a city orderly or safe uh, is a cultural question. And what I have seen operating in the field of urban planning is that we let um, industries that sell urban infrastructures um, pretty much dominate, you know, decision making around uh, how we're spending our public dollars and you know, the the shape and maintenance of our cities. One of the most common reactions Dr. Lugo gets when broaching these topics with transportation professionals 
is a gut reaction that she must be anti-infrastructure. I can't tell you how many times I've I've had to run up against this assumption that, like, I'm I'm against infrastructure. And, you know, it's like, well, I'm not the one who's, who's speaking in those black or white terms. I actually think we need to move away from those kind of, you know, black or white terms. Of course we need built infrastructure. But we also need to consider the social, cultural, and political factors that play such a critical role in how people experience walking. In order to try and get her point across, she started using a new term to describe the approach for which she was advocating. So I started working with um, the concept of human infrastructure or social infrastructure because I thought, well, if everybody's talking about infrastructure, maybe if I explain culture in those terms, (laughs) I can, like... um, make sense, you know, within this uh, conversation. You may be asking, what is human infrastructure or social infrastructure? There are other academics and researchers who use this term in slightly different ways. But when Dr. Lugo uses it, she means addressing mobility challenges through culture, community, and social networks, rather than strictly through changes to the built environment. The best way to approach trying to advance um, human infrastructure or use human infrastructure as a basis for a street change strategy is, is really based on observing how people are using streets today and then um, supporting, you know, what they would agree are the more positive uses of um, the street. One way that she's experimented with this approach is by organizing free cultural events and programming. Dr. Lugo was part of the group that helped create the Los Angeles version of Bogota, Colombia's Ciclovia event, which they called Ciclovia, where a network of major streets are shut down to traffic for a day. The idea there was by having a um, city-sanctioned event where during the day street spaces could be available for bicycling and walking, that... um, we could be creating a, a liberating experience, like the, the kind of fun that people were having in spaces like Critical Mass or in the many group bike rides that were um, happening in the L.A. landscape at the end of the 2000s. We could create a space where just anybody could come and, um, you know, have that experience of um, the street as something more than a, a corridor for driving. Another example of human infrastructure that she gave was community bike shops, where people can learn how to repair their bikes, pay other community members to repair their bikes, or earn their own bike through a cooperative work structure. Dr. Lugo also referenced international efforts to address the issue of sexual and gender-based harassment on public transit. You know, I can think of, like, in Mexico City, they have instituted separate spaces for women on um, some public transit so that you know, women can uh, travel without uh, being groped or harassed. Um, and, you know, but I don't, I don't think that the movements for increasing women or, um, you know, uh, gender nonconforming or trans people safety are really looking to build environment design as a solution. Um, I think that there's a pretty strong awareness that it's a cultural problem and that, you know, we need to shift the culture that says it's okay to um, subject (laughs) some members of our community to this sort of targeted harassment and and, um, feeling of vulnerability. 
Another critical component of human infrastructure involves reimagining how we can best utilize our city transportation budgets. We have to get away from this idea that equity in transportation means hiring a big firm to come in and, you know, design changes. Maybe some community members get a very token stipend for participation in some focus group or design charrette or something like that. Um, and then the thing's built, the firm leaves, and the community just you know, <laughs> continues to be caught up in the cycle of gentrification and displacement that, you know, the built environment changes are part of. So I really, you know, I, I don't see that as leading to a goal of, of equity, but I definitely see that label applied, um, you know, when there are efforts to do active transportation projects in um, disinvested communities. Installing bike lanes and pedestrian plazas in low-income neighborhoods in the name of equity doesn't really hold water. If the city never bothered to ask residents what kind of transportation support they wanted and would actually use. So I think that, yeah, making changes is ultimately, you know, going to require shifting how we spend our public dollars on transportation away from funding planning firms and toward funding community-based efforts. I mean, what does it look like to actually spend real money on community-based projects? I think there's a lot of barriers to that. Um, and, and deep within those barriers is the idea, the very strong cultural idea that we can't trust poor people with money, we can't trust poor people to make decisions about um, public resources, we can't trust them to make decisions about their own lives. So, you know, to my thinking, if there's like a million dollars to be spent on transportation improvements in a particular part of the city, what does it look like to try and funnel that million dollars into the hands of the actual, you know, street users and residents of that neighborhood? This also requires recognition of the fact that community members are the experts on their own neighborhoods. They know where the changes need to be made. They know what has been tried in the past and failed. And they know what solutions would be most effective and well-received. The realities of mobility injustice and what steps need to be taken toward mobility justice um, are always going to be very specific to particular communities and um, you know, the, the way to uh, define those things is, is with their leadership, um, you know, from day one. So that's, that's a really important piece of the mobility justice um, project is just really emphasizing that uh, it's local folks, local activists, local community members who are experiencing these things who need to be the ones defining what the problems are and what the solutions could be. What would it look like to take a human infrastructure approach to walkability rooted in the values of the mobility justice movement? Are there people and organizations out there already doing it? My answer would be yes and no. There is certainly a growing and powerful movement of mobility justice advocates. I haven't yet been able to identify a mass movement around bringing human infrastructure into walkability specifically, 
But I do believe that there are organizations out there doing that type of work, just under different mastheads and using different terminology. So in the next few episodes, we're going to talk to them. If you'd like to learn more about the people, places, and ideas discussed in this episode, check out the resources tab at footnotespod.com. Graphic design for Footnotes is by Micah Epstein. The music is from Blue Dot Sessions. I'd like to thank Dr. Adonia Lugo and Ambar Johnson for all their time. I'd also like to thank my advisors on this project, Julian Asherman and Penn Lowe. This has been Footnotes. Thanks for listening.